Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language. In other words, might get a little blue in here. Hope you can handle it. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 28th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Raiders defensive lineman Carl Nassib's decision to come out, becoming the first active NFL player ever to do so. We'll also discuss Chris Paul, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Paul George, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, Trey Young, at least some of them. Point being, they're all still alive in the NBA playoffs at the time I'm recording this. And finally, we'll take a tour through the week in sports idiocy, with stops at the Tour de France in the College World Series. Please join us, won't you? I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of One of the Slow Burns, and the new podcast, One Year. The trailer is out today, team. I'll get through this quickly so you can go and listen to it. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Which year? One year, 1977. July 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Stefan. It's a good year. I remember that year. You guys don't remember that year. Uh, Yankees, etc. Correct. Probably not covered in the podcast, but that's, that's an unspoken overlay. Just think about that. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, and the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6, no trailer yet. Mm-mm. It's Joel Anderson. Waiting on that trailer. Excited for the trailer. Yeah, well, if you guys can hold on another three or four months, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm, I'm I can sure hold there'll on. be one eventually. Okay. Yeah, why, give nine, we'll give one year the spotlight for the time. Let's let people just have enough time to sort of, you know, savor that, uh, that excellence that, before they Appreciate get to slow burn six. That's right. Until last week, defensive end Carl Nassib of the Las Vegas Raiders was probably best known for a scene in the HBO series Hard Knocks in which he explains the magic of compound interest to a group of astounded Raiders teammates. Now he'll forever be known as an NFL pioneer, the first player to come out as gay while playing in the league. Nassib, who is 28 and entering his sixth year in the NFL, made the announcement in a one-minute video posted to Instagram. Let's listen to the whole thing. What's up, people? I'm Carl Massive. I'm at my house here in Westchester, Pennsylvania. just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. Um, I really have the best life. I got the best family, friends, and job a guy could ask for. Um, I'm a pretty private person, so I hope you guys know that I'm really not doing this for attention. Um, I just think that representation and visibility are so important. Um, I actually hope that like one day... Videos like this and the whole coming out process are just not necessary. Um, but until then, you know, I'm going to do my best and do my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting, that's compassionate. And I'm going to start by donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project. They're an incredible organization. They're the number one suicide prevention service for LGBTQ youth in America. And they're truly doing incredible things. And I'm very excited to be a part of it to help in any way that I can. And I'm really pumped to see what the future holds. 
Beyond Carl Nassib's very large and verdant backyard and the birds chirping, what's striking to me about the video is how something so powerful that could have an enormous impact on huge numbers of people feels so casual. I don't know Carl Nassib, Joel, but he seems like a good dude with both the on-field talent and the disarming and congenial personality to handle whatever scrutiny might come from being the first out active NFL player. Uh, or maybe there won't be much scrutiny. What do you think? I do think that there will be a little bit of scrutiny and a little bit of attention, you know, probably when he gets back to training camp or when the season starts, there'll be, you know, the sort of news stories that you'd expect, just sort of covering his journey, how his team treats him, you know, how the front office treats him, that sort of stuff. I think that'll probably be congratulatory. You know, people will be very proud of themselves for being as accepting as they are. And then the real challenge will start. Will he feel integrated within his locker room still? Will he get more opportunities? Like, let's just say that, you know, the Raiders cut him for whatever reason, because he's an average football player. That means he's great. I mean, the fact that he's an average NFL player means he's actually a great football player, but it doesn't mean that he has career stability in the way that like Aaron Rodgers or somebody does, right? So let's see like what other opportunities he gets when his contract comes to the end with the Raiders. And let's see if he gets any opportunities in football after. And I think that's sort of the thing that struck me. And if you listen to today's episode of What Next, they interviewed Dave Capay, who was the first football player to come out. I think he came out after his career was over, though. And he mentioned that he wanted to get into coaching. He wasn't able to do that and had to get into a family business. And I think that's one of the things that like people sort of forget, that it's not just about football is your playing career, but a big part of it is that how you stay attached to the game afterward. And I think it's really crucial to look at some of the players who've come out as gay after their careers are over and whether or not they've been able to make a living for themselves within the game. And I can't think of that many. I'm sure there are some, but they may not be open or they may not be openly gay or they may never come out. And I think that that says a little something about what the culture is like within the NFL. So I think it's too early to tell. I think that, you know, he'll probably play a little ball early and we'll be really excited about it. And then like the rubber will have to meet the road. But Josh, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm a little pessimistic. I don't know. The thing that was so striking to me about the video, besides the backyard, as you so aptly pointed out, Stefan, was the really studied way in which he was casual. He talked about um, in interviews how he'd been thinking about doing this since he was a teenager and so that what that what's up just wanted to say just wanted to take a second to say i'm gay like it wasn't just what's up just wanted to take a second to say i'm gay and joel i mean this wasn't michael sam's coming out announcement but i was reminded of the contrast of the draft night you know video where michael sam kissed his boyfriend on national television and what a huge moment that was and just how different this was and how clear it was to me how stage managed this was to make him seem quote unquote normal and non-threatening and what's up guys I'm just your NFL pal Carl like I'm not any different and so there's something really powerful about that but Stefan, I could definitely tell that this was a guy who felt like he needed to stay within a certain lane and a certain box. And maybe that's the lane that he feels most comfortable in. It seems like he's not a guy who wants to 
call a lot of attention to himself. Um, and so maybe that is what will allow him to succeed and thrive in the NFL. But this did not, yeah, this casualness did not seem casual to me. Maybe Carl Nassib just felt like casualness was the right approach. That's the message he wanted to convey. Uh, his personality certainly indicates that he doesn't want this to become uh, the defining characteristic of who he is, even though it will, of course, and he knows that. Contrasted with how two women athletes came out this week. Shakari Richardson thanked her girlfriend offhandedly after making the Olympics. That was it. And Kumi Yokoyama of the Washington Spirit, who plays for Japan's women's soccer team, came out as a transgender man. They made the announcement in a video. Yeah. I mean, there is something to be said for, like, you know, the climate around sports, right? And it does appear that people are becoming a tad more accepting. And I'm sure that it's much better to grow up identifying as LGBTQ in 2021 as opposed to like 1991, right? But that doesn't mean that all the hurdles have been closed. And I, you know, I vividly remember this because I covered Michael Sam when he was coming into the NFL in 2014 and everybody was sort of congratulating themselves. You know, he won the Arthur Ashe Award for the ESPYs. He was hailed as a hero. And then within two years, he wasn't a professional football player anymore. And I know that there are a lot of people that think that he wasn't a very good football player. And in fact, I heard from former NFL players that hit me up over the weekend after I was tweeting about it to say, oh, he wasn't really good. You know, he wasn't a very good player and it had nothing to do with, you know, him being gay. But I actually think to me that that's sort of a tell that people were so defensive about the idea that maybe the NFL is not 100% meritocratic and quite as accepting as people think it is. Uh, and also, you know, to that point, it says something that it's 2021 and it's, this is the first player that is an active NFL player that has felt comfortable enough to come out. And so I don't think that, you know, people should be any less diligent. We should not be resting on our laurels here now that Carl Nassib has done the hard work of coming out. It's up to everybody else to hold the NFL accountable and see that they're, that there's something beyond their rhetoric, that there's something beyond, you know, offhanded tweets about, oh, yeah, we're so proud of you. We're ready to accept you, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, the real work is to come now. And I guess we'll just find out how committed they are to that. You mentioned Michael Sam and him not being in the NFL anymore and not getting the chance uh, to really be in it very much in the first place. And it's just very reminiscent of how when Colin Kaepernick started to kneel, suddenly he wasn't a good quarterback anymore. Mm -hmm. And the bigger tell on that, I mean, I, I think there's honestly no argument to make that Kaepernick shouldn't be in the NFL on merit. But like, there's even a worse argument that Eric Reed shouldn't be in the NFL. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the dude was like one of the best safeties in the NFL, was playing at an incredibly high level. And then, you know, suddenly, once he supports Kaepernick and starts kneeling, he's not good enough to be in the NFL either. And it is extremely common for people who have never heard of Carl Nassib, have never watched him play, to all of a sudden be like, yeah, that guy's not that good. Or as you said, Joel, maybe we'll look at his stats this year and say, Oh, they're only playing him because they want the good publicity. I mean, I mean, these are things that will be inevitable. And it is fascinating to me that the NFL just clearly thinks this is a very positive thing for its image, tweeting out congratulations, tweeting out a video 
saying kind of remarkably, like football is G-A-Y, um, lesbian, beautiful, queer, life, culture, transgender, promoting the Trevor Project. I mean, this is the National Football League. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's amazing. It is amazing. And that should be celebrated. But <laughs> what is the institution of professional football going to support this guy? Again, the great point that Joel made. On a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, when there's not a public service announcement, what are the kind of rank-and-file players? What are the coaches? And I know that, not to play into stereotypes, but football coaches, Mm. I mean, Mm. come on. Mm. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, they're, 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 I mean, they're overpaid gym coaches. I mean, to be honest, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, they're, I mean, we're not talking about a bastion of progressiveness. Uh, among coaches. I don't know. I'm going to push back a little bit and say that there are a lot of assistant coaches on NFL staffs who are in their 20s and 30s who are more progressive. Um, You know, you were in locker rooms, Joel, uh, in my short time in an NFL locker room 15 years ago, 15 summers ago, it would not have shocked me if players were not wholly supportive of a player who decided to come out. I think that we underestimate the progressiveness of the NFL workforce overall. And I think that the sort of steps that the NFL has taken in the last week, issuing a statement from Goodell, putting out this this video, which has, it's just white lettering on a black background. There's no voiceover. Um, there's some music and, and, and an occasional cheer in the background for the audio track. But that was a remarkable thing. And, and I do think that will have some trickle down in as much as it is an institutional message to teams and front offices that this is something that is not a big deal that we need to support. So you believe that that's more sincere than, for instance, the messages in the end zone about racial equality. You're more willing to believe this than that. I am more willing to believe that this is easier in some ways for NFL teams to deal with because ease is all front offices really care about and PR departments care about. But I thought you were just about. saying they were genuinely progressive, not that they just cared about ease. Well, I'm talking about players being progressive, not necessarily the teams, but I think in this case, the teams do have an incentive to just sort of say, this is no big deal and we support these causes. I don't think this is a big lift, whereas I do think that because of the national conversation about race and about policing, that was more fraught for these leagues. You know, what is it, like 70% of the American public in surveys now support gay marriage? This is a safer bet for the league in terms of its fan base. Carl Nassib has $16.5 million guaranteed on his contract. This is not an easy cut for the Raiders. He is a productive player. He's not a superstar, but they signed him to a three-year, $25 million contract with more than 16 guaranteed. He is a, an established player, and that makes a difference too. Well, Stefan, I, th- I think the thing is, is that um, I do agree that we often underestimate players in this equation, that they have played with and know of players within their own locker rooms that are gay, of course right? But I mean, I think it says something that like only one player that has been an active NFL player has felt comfortable enough to come out. Like to me, 
that's the tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. Like, shouldn't we be listening to what we're not hearing from all of the the gay players that are certainly in the NFL? Like, they must know something. I mean, some of it, Joel, it must be fear. And we know that fear isn't always 100% rational. But if it was this, like, unbelievably (laughs) progressive and safe environment, then this wouldn't have been the first guy like this to ever happen. And also, like, J.J. Watt sent a nice message. Nassib's Penn State teammate Saquon Barkley sent a nice message. There weren't that many players that, that did that. Like His teammate Darren the, Waller where, did, but you're right. Where are a lot the star of superstars. I didn't see Tom Brady. Where's Tom Brady? Where's, where's, you know, this was not an overwhelming response in the way that it might have been. Well, think about it, too. I mean, there are no coaches that we know of that are openly gay. There are no general managers that we know that are openly gay. No, no owners that we know that are openly gay. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I feel like there's still so many levels to this where people, either they are and don't feel comfortable enough to come out within this culture, right? Or, you know, like, I guess maybe they were just waiting on somebody else to, to do it and come forward. Or, or maybe it's so, maybe it's part of the culture already in the NFL and there are gay people that are on staffs up and down, you know, the front offices or whatever, and we just don't know about it. But yeah, um, maybe they're supported, but like in a more, and not on Twitter in a way that we would say. Yeah, but I just kind of feel like the fact that, like you said, Joseph, that there's this absence, absence of public support so far sort of to me as a tell and, and like I said the fact that like a guy couldn't come out until 2021 in spite of the fact that as you said Stefan that 70% of people say that they support gay marriage right right but I don't think that that has to mean anything and I also think that like when people ask you a question on a survey that's totally different than oh do I want my teammate to be gay do I want to shower next to a guy that is gay and I think that like if you dig into that and people are actually honest I, know, I mean about but what did you guys film? expect I mean did you want like a, a full-blown press conference I mean isn't this the right way for something like this to be handled when an athlete is comfortable making a statement and doing it in in their own way I mean Jim Bozinski writing in Outsports said that you know he noted that there was a planned nonchalance to this that this announcement was made, and he wrote the dead part of the offseason six weeks before training camp, late in the workday on the East Coast, without fanfare. Um, Even the Raiders players' reactions were positive, but with a sense of a shrug, meaning this was not going to be the dreaded locker room distraction. I mean, you know, it's not training camp, and it gives the team and Nassib's teammates and Nassib himself, you know, a few months to... You know, work the room and get adjusted to it and plan for what's going to happen when players return to camps. I said a few months, I mean a few weeks. But isn't this the way that this should be done? I mean, did we expect more? No, there's no more? particular way it should be done. It should be done however anybody right. wants to do it. Exactly. And this was the right, way. So why, not... so why <laughs> the... Why the, well, the, NF, why? the NFL hasn't earned the benefit of the doubt. That's what I guess what we're saying, right? That like, okay, like, you know, there's a response or not a response or not enough of a response or too much of a response or whatever. The response is what it is right now. And we're just saying, let's just hold off because the NFL hasn't done anything to show that it actually is like an ally to the LGBT community. What else would you like the NFL to do? Here's what I would say also, that back to the Michael Sam thing, and I invoked your name, Joel, because you wrote a great BuzzFeed feature about Michael Sam and his his family that people should read if they haven't. But I feel like he paid the price for kissing his boyfriend. 
And I feel like, again, maybe Carl Nassib wants to announce this in a way that makes him feel uh, or look really safe and normal. But like, you know, J.J. Watt is like sharing his wedding photos. And all of the summer of Aaron Rodgers is just like him, you know, cavorting around with Shailene Woodley in Hawaii and whatever. So there's just a way in which Carl Nassib has to be that straight NFL players have the freedom to do whatever they want and present themselves however they want. And so I don't think that the NFL is there yet for gay players. And I also feel like it's going to be really hard for Carl Nassib to navigate this as somebody who was just, I think he just did a great job in that video being like, I'm just like a normal football dude, but also here's $100,000 for the Trevor Project. Like he's going to feel and want to be this role model and ally for all of the people for whom this is going to be so important that he exists and is out and proud. But he also is not going to want to be like the gay NFL guy who, and that's the only thing that people know him as. And that must be just incredibly hard like to to navigate that as somebody who wants to fit in, but as the only out player, like how is he going to possibly be able to, to do that and also do the like work and the service that he clearly wants to do? I mean, a lot of the players, the most of the players that have come out after retirement have gone on to be active in LGBTQ areas. Esra Tuolo, Wade Davis. I mean, they're, almost all the NFL players that have, that have come out have made it a part of their lives. And Carl Nassib is just saying, I'm going to make it a part of my life now. Will it be difficult for him? He must anticipate that. I'm also sure that he talked to his teammates and he talked to the Raiders front office. This didn't happen in a vacuum. And part of that plan nonchalance was the preparation, the groundwork that he had to have laid with his employers and his teammates to try to make sure that this is done in a way that everyone would feel comfortable with. Um, you know, and in terms of like with a burden on him, he's accepting that burden because he is the first, you know, he said in that video, I actually hope that one day videos like this and the whole coming out process are just not necessary. But until then, he's going to do what he wants to do to cultivate a better place. I'll just bring up one more, one more player. I'm not going to say his name. It was from not long after the Michael Sam situation and I'm not going to say his name because it's just a little uncomfortable and I don't know, you know, if, you know, I, we can't confirm a lot of this, but there was a top NFL safety. I think the pro football focus had him ranked like the fourth best strong safety in the NFL. In the offseason, there were pictures of him holding a man in a way that suggested that they were in a romantic relationship on some sort of tropical vacation. He never played in the NFL again. And he just disappeared. And you can probably look it up if you want to look this guy's name up. But I'm very dubious of the NFL. And, I mean, they're still blackballing Colin Kaepernick. Eric Reed still can't get a job. That guy disappeared from the NFL. I'm happy for Carl Nassib. Look forward to him playing well in football and potentially becoming an activist and a leader for so many other LGBTQ youth. But um, the NFL is the wild card here. And they haven't done anything to prove that we should trust them or that they're going to do right by that guy. And that's, you know, I guess we'll we'll find out. They'll have to, their deeds are going to have to back up their words. Regardless of what the NFL does, what Carl Nassib did is incalculably important for LGBTQ people, for kids, for athletes, 
um, who are unlikely or, or less likely to, to play because of their fears. So this was a huge moment in sports, and I think we should focus on Carl Nassib rather than the NFL. Next up, the NBA playoffs. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk more U.S. Olympic track and field trials. We will talk about the historic long jump, high jump, double by Javon Harrison. We're going to talk about Glenn Berry's protest and how it keeps moving forward. And we'll talk about the heat in Oregon. To hear that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this show. You get bonus segments in other Slate podcasts. You can also get your podcast ad-free and get unlimited reading on Slate.com. It's only a dollar for the first month if you want to try it out. You can sign up at Slate.com slash HangUpPlus. That's Slate.com slash HangUpPlus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As of Monday morning, the Phoenix Suns are one win away from making it to the NBA Finals, up three games to one over the Kawhi-less Clippers. And in the East, the Milwaukee Bucks won Atlanta on Sunday night, taking a 2-1 to series lead over the Hawks. Let's start with that Eastern Conference series because Giannis Antetokounmpo and Trey Young are two extremely different players who are very similar in one important way. They've both at times been harshly criticized for having enormous holes in their games, ones that could keep their teams from winning a title. It'd be unfair to say that Giannis can't shoot, but by the standards of NBA MVPs, the guy really cannot shoot. And it'd be unfair to say that Trey Young can't play defense. Well, actually, that was more than fair for a very long time, but he seems to be somewhat better now. We're nice people, so let's go back to the good stuff, Stefan. As we've seen in the series, both guys are amazing at almost everything that a basketball player can do. So what do you see when you watch them play? I see the thing that's common to superstar athletes. They do things all the time that look like aberrations, and they do them seemingly without effort. I love Giannis first and foremost because he's Greek, and like my other Greek crush, Stefanos Tsitsipas, he exudes a goofy earnestness and innocence that I find really endearing. I mean, did you see that video the other day of Giannis making fun of himself? It was delightful. Uh, Giannis doesn't seem tough enough to be great, to be as great as he is. And then he drives the lane in like half a step or changes his mind midair and switches from a finger roll to a dunk. And come on, Josh, with the he can't shoot, he can't shoot threes. 
well, yeah, but he barely takes any and he doesn't need to. Is he going through some weirdness from the free throw line? Yeah, but not like Ben Simmons. I'm so <laughs> in my Giannis defense mode here. In the last seven games, Giannis is averaging 33 points and 12 rebounds with more than respectable conventional and advanced shooting metrics. The last, like, 60 years, four players have averaged more than 30 and 10 in 10 playoff games in a year. Kareem, Hakeem, Shaq, and Giannis. So, come on. He's unbelievable. And Trey Young is kind of the opposite, I think. Less joy and humility than the impression that he's saying, fuck you, all the time. And does stuff like those floaters in the lane that look like they should be stoppable but obviously aren't. Trey Young is the annoying dude that you want on your team and can't stand watching when he's on the other team um, because he'll get under your skin. Joel, we should talk some more about Giannis, but Trey Young is proving that he's much more than a volume shooter. Is he just getting better? Uh, who does he remind you of? Well, uh, you know, I watched Trey in college and that one season in Oklahoma was a revelation, right? To be as productive as he was, even then, it was hard to see how he wouldn't have an impact in the NBA. And the comparisons to Steph seemed inevitable. Steph Curry, for people uh, that didn't know who I'm referring to. But the comparisons to Steph seemed inevitable because of his physique and his audacity. But I actually compare him most to James Harden in that he's not a particularly accurate shooter, but his usage is mitigated by the fact that he's always getting to the free throw line and that critics use that against him. Like, they think that he's, like, exploited some loophole in the game by, like, drawing fouls and people get pissed at him or whatever. But, um, oh, my God, you're an apologist for drawing those fouls? Yeah, no, I think that's great. I Look, I, look, I think this is – I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a style and ethics argument, but not one about effectiveness or efficiency. And until the refs adjust their calls, then that's exactly what Trey Young should be doing. I like that. I rooted for it when James Harden did it, and I like it now that Trey Young is doing it. And maybe you guys can can tell me if I'm right or wrong here. And I want to say we, and I acknowledge that I haven't and won't set any real boundaries for who's included in that group, but I think that I'm talking about media from like Skip Bayless to like beat writers at The Athletic that people are way too critical of NBA stars for their on-court play. Like, I mean, these guys are all uh, incredible. Like, and, but the thing is, is during the playoffs, all of their weaknesses get magnified. And then we focus on something like, Jonas can't shoot. Trey's not great at defense. But like, dude, they're playing against not only the best athletes in the world, but the best of the best in high-stakes competition. And so, of course, their weakness. Like, of course, it's going to be more difficult for Giannis to hit threes. Of course, it's going to be more difficult for Trey Young to stay in front of his... Def- you Giannis know, isn't missing threes him. because he's facing the toughest competition. There's nobody within five feet of him. Uh, I, ta- but- I take your point, but I- I've got to push back on that one. He's also shooting air balls on threes, Stefan, and, on- and at the free throw line. The thing that's so incredible about Giannis is that he can look so mortal and bad in these isolated moments and yet be so great and unstoppable and awesome when he's at his best, which is he's normally at his best. You know, what I said in the introduction was that there is always, and and this is getting right at the point that you just made, Joel, there's this kind of obsession with like figuring out the thing that's wrong with everyone who's great and the reason why they won't succeed. And there's usually a kind of narrative around, oh, LeBron lost in the finals to the Mavericks and then he got a better jump shot in postgame, so then they won. But it seems possible 
Less so for the Hawks, but like it seems possible that the Bucks will win the title and Giannis isn't going to figure out how to become a great jump shooter by the time they make it to the NBA Finals if they make it. And that doesn't that just speak even more to his greatness that a player who is so flawed because he is so unflawed in every other ways, like what could be more impressive than that in some sense? I know you agree with me, Stefan. I totally agree with you. I mean, Giannis does <laughs> things on the court at will that just you can't believe. I mean, and I think part of it for me is like the personality thing. I mean, because he does feel like, you know, I see him as the 18-year-old that came into the NBA that couldn't speak English and was skinny and gawky. And the way this guy, and he's only 26, has evolved and grown in the sport is amazing. I mean, he's got another potentially, you know, 10 years in this league. And if we're criticizing the fact that he, you know, only shoots 30% from beyond the arc and he only does it four or five times a game, I mean, who gives a shit? Maybe he'll get better. Maybe his free throw shooting will return to 75%, which it was earlier in his career. But these are, you know, like you said, Josh, these are things that we pick at that are ultimately, given how well the Bucs seem to be playing and how the Bucs have other pieces around Giannis that have that are like ca- helping to carry the team too, seem kind of irrelevant right now. So two quick things about the East before I uh, move us to the West. The thing that's so interesting to me about Trey Young is that when you watch him, the things he does feel so remarkable and feel like they should be singular. But he is, in fact, so similar to Steph Curry and Damian Lillard. Like, and it just makes me wonder if in five or ten years there are going to be even more of these guys who are doing things that now just seem like they shouldn't be legal, <laughs> that are just so crazy pulling up from 30 and doing the sidestep threes and the step backs and the, all of the, the floaters that he does too. It, it seems like if you had told me like 20 years ago, if somehow you had been able to show me these highlights and told me that there was a, a guy doing this stuff, I was like, well, there's, there's obviously not going to be anyone else like that in the NBA is doing those things. Um, and then the other thing is the Bucks supporting cast had been so disappointing <laughs> in recent playoffs and Chris Middleton has just been so good. And it's just funny to me to imagine a world in which Chris Middleton is actually acknowledged as like the superstar that he is because he just seems like the guy based on like his manner and his style of game that just like needs to be underrated by America. That's just like what we do. But I guess he's like a Rip Hamilton type, maybe. And that guy got some respect when the when the Pistons won their their title. So maybe he will too. Um in the West. The Suns are up 3-1. Paul George, Joel, is like maybe the guy you were thinking of when you were talking about people nitpicking star players. And to me, he wasn't? No? Well, no, well, I mean, I think all, all of them get nitpicked, but continue with the here's, question. And I can... Here's an analogy that occurred to me. Let me know if you think this is true. Paul George is like the second best hand in poker. He's so good. He's just good enough to get you beat. And... It's never good to have the second best hand because you're like going all in with that second best hand. And then somebody just comes over the top of you at the end. (laughs) Like, I think that at least in this moment feels like sadly Paul George's lot in life where he's just a great NBA player. who's just one tier below the super great 
players, even like his teammate, Kawhi Leonard. Do you feel like that's, and I, and I don't mean that as a criticism of him. I just think it's, and part of it could just be circumstance. That's just like, it's happened to him that he's like missed some key free throws and shots and, and things like that. But it, I'm trying to make that happen. Paul George is the second best poker hand. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I've never played poker before and don't know how to play poker. So <laughs> I, I'll have to I- accept that analogy. I do think that I both feel bad for Paul George that he gets criticized in this way. But I also think that he has to own some of that because, I, I mean, I don't know the genesis of the playoff P nickname. <laughs> But I assume it came from him or somebody close to him. It's like if you name yourself him. Podcast J and you just have a bad yeah, podcast. Right. Yeah, right. It's just like, yeah, that was a bad idea. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, I mean, I just feel like it's kind of an unfortunate nickname. And he's not, I mean, when he started off early in his career and he was with the Indiana Pacers and they really challenged those, you know, LeBron James Heat teams, everybody thought, oh, wow, this guy's like, amazingly talented he's going toe-to-toe with LeBron and almost knocked off those heat teams twice in the playoffs so you've got a couple years earlier in your career to like lose impressively before people start getting mad at you yeah and I see that's the thing man I think it's because I just was saying this stuff afflicts every NBA star and that's a lot of the reason I became a LeBron James fan chief among them besides the racism unleashed post-decision was this narrative about him not being clutch about him not being MJ not being Kobe and it all seems so reductive and stupid and like we do this in one way or another with all of our superstars like Magic Johnson was called Tragic Johnson Michael Jordan was too much of a ball hog to ever be a champion Shaq was too distracted with Hollywood and rapping to commit himself to the game LeBron wasn't well, clutch was Dirk was true. soft Oh, <laughs> I don't know stop. if he was distracted by, how, but he like admittedly came to training camp out of shape. But that's a, yeah. We don't want to get. I mean, we don't want to get off track here. He was still great. He I was mean, still you know great. I mean, ultimately great. He's still great. Love Dirk Shaq. was too soft. We'll defend him to the end of end of the earth. Exactly. KD was unreliable. CP3 is too much of a scold and beholden only to his feel of the game. James Harden is too selfish. We do this with everybody, right? And so like Paul George is just getting his. It just happens to be that like. He nicknamed himself Playoff P. <laughs> and so like his failures and his shortcomings are that much more glaring. Failure of branding, Stefan. That's why I love Giannis. I'm going to go back to Giannis because I no, love him so West. much. We're on the West. No, no, I'm going back to Giannis. The You're going to the cradle of about, The last thing about Giannis <laughs> that I wanted to say that I'm going to say now is that so the fans have been on him, and it's been very entertaining when he goes to the foul line and people are doing the fast countdown or count up for how many seconds he's taking. None of it seems to bother him. He's lovely. He's adorable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is. He he's he's a lovely guy. I, you know, James Harden make that criticism of him that it, he has no skill. People that get really upset if they think that you have some sort of ill-gotten games. It's just like, oh, you just dunk, and that's all you do. It's like, well, shit. Why would you do anything else if you can't dunk and you can overpower people with your athleticism? It's not like Giannis came into the Giannis came into the league, and was like this massive physical force. Like he was a fairly skinny kid. Like he worked for that body. So if he wants to use it to impose his dominance on players, I think he's well within his right. Thank you. On behalf of Giannis. I like to give him the permission for that. All right. Let's talk about the Suns, who to me are the favorites to win the title. Although over the Bucks? Over the Bucks? Yes. Really? Although Wait, where'd you get that from? You would you said they were the favorite. How did you make that decision? Just because I I Think it, and I nobody can stop me from saying it. So, I'm just gonna say <laughs> okay, it. so <laughs> the thing that they're running in, into here is, as we know, Chris Paul. Speaking of players that get criticized, has never made the finals and has run into some quite 
I don't want to say hilarious because they're not they're not at all funny, but just like interesting obstacles over his career around like yeah. injuries, like he was vaccinated but still managed to get put in COVID protocol and missed the first couple of games of the conference finals. He had that weird injury in the first game of the Lakers series. So I'm just wondering, like, is he going to spontaneously combust in game (laughs) five? Like, what is going to happen to keep Chris Paul out of the finals? But, you know, the reason that I think the Suns are going to, you know, be the favorite is that they seem like the most coherent team to me with the most reliable set of players and i feel like people including myself are starting to understand that deandre Aiden is a guy that is a force and he speaking of like time travel he's somebody who feels like he's come from an earlier era of the nba to like wreak havoc mm-hmm. on a league that is not prepared mm-hmm. to deal with a traditional big man but like devin booker is the scorer chris paul is the point guard deandre Ayton is the center mikhail bridgers is like the you know glue guy three-point shooter hustler defensive player jay crowder can do all those things too in a slightly more annoying way so this just to me seems like a team that you like know what you're gonna get out of them if chris paul is healthy and on the court and they do have i think in devin booker the guy who and not for like narrative reasons, but like you just need a guy who can score in in these games, who can like get his own shot and be the best player on the court in any game. And he's definitely good enough to be that guy on a championship team, I think. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, and maybe Stefan can hear to this, because um, he's a, a Giannis fan. I think the Bucks are just frustrating to watch, and that's why you're giving the Suns the, this advantage, because... You know, we've seen so much beautiful basketball dominate the last half decade. Like, we watched the Warriors, the Cavs had Braun and Kyrie. I mean, sort of the only aberration amongst the string of champions was the Kawhi Raptors. And everybody kind of understands that, well, the Warriors fell apart and Kawhi and the Raptors took advantage. But the Bucks don't look like anything that we're used to watching recently. Whereas the Suns feel like a throwback where they've got these fixed positions, the point guard, the scorer, the big man, the do everything wings. The Bucks are sort of like a throwback to those early 2000 teams, like the Pistons and, you know, the Nets and like some like the Spurs. Those, those teams so that are the like Pistons. Who are you casting as, as Giannis? Uh, uh, Rasheed ben, Wallace? Ben, ben Wallace with an offensive. Yeah, Ben, ben, ben Wallace with what I'm trying a, to say. Suddenly, a modicum of offense. poor analogy, in my opinion. Oh, come on. I mean, I think I mean, the thing is, is that like nobody thinks of it's crazy to say this and I shouldn't even say that nobody says, thinks this, but. Giannis is not a natural scorer. Like, he's not a guy that you just say, hey, man, just go out there and get buckets. He's like a big man in a way. And it's like, it's just. But it's that's, a type that's of the reason offense. that they'll lose if they lose, right? Like, if that storyline that has been true for LeBron and other players comes true, that when it comes down to it, it's going to be on Giannis to be able to lead this team to a championship. And is he ready? 
to do that. And I'm glad that we've already decided who the finals are, by the way. This oh, yeah, my bad. Yeah, the, the Western bad. Conference finals are not, or Eastern Conference finals. Neither of them are over, but we've already decided. Yeah, why are we doing Bucks this? We shouldn't, we shouldn't yeah. have done that. But we've kind of, we've come too far to turn back now. There's no turning back now. I think because we want that to be the finals in some way, because I think I at least want to see Giannis um, ascend <laughs> oh, really? to that level. And like you said, Josh, I mean, I think that playing the Suns would be a much more interesting matchup because of how balanced their goodness is. And how broken the Clippers are. I mean, they don't have their best player. You know what I mean? Like, we just... You think there's, a, like, a like a ceiling on how good they can be right now, right? So... And the next segment, we talk about how fundamentally stupid sports and sports fans were over the weekend. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As far as sports go, it appeared things were almost getting back to normal. Right now, major athletic events are happening concurrently all around the globe, from the Euro 2020 to the Stanley Cup Finals to the U.S. Olympic Trials to Wimbledon. But just because the calendar is full doesn't mean people have adjusted to this new post-vaccine sports world. In fact, a pair of goofy incidents from the weekend show that maybe we're not quite ready for a return to normal. In the early morning hours of Saturday, the NCAA Division I Baseball Committee declared a no contest in the winner-take-all bracket final between North Carolina State and Vanderbilt, which was scheduled for that afternoon, but it was called off because of COVID-19 protocols. That meant NC State was out and Vandy was going to the College World Series championship round. This decision was made after the Wolfpack was down to just 13 players on Friday because of COVID-19-related issues. And in the Tour de France... A female spectator created a huge crash and pileup when one of the cyclists clipped a large sign she was holding along the route. Germany's Tony Martin lost his balance and set off a chain reaction, knocking down wave after wave of cyclists and creating a blooper reel that went viral over the weekend. The woman escaped in all of the chaos, and a Tour de France official says the organization will sue her if and when they track her down. Josh, given all of the above, you've referred to this as our week of idiocy. So... Do we deserve sports anymore or not? No, I mean, I've canceled all of them, so <laughs> we, can, we can all go home. The Tour de France thing reminded me of those viral videos that you see sometimes of like a grocery store surveillance camera where somebody like takes a detergent bottle, like, like hits it by accident and like an entire giant display just falls over. Um, so I can understand why she would have just wanted to get out of there. It's embarrassing to cause an enormous uh, crash at the... Tour de France. Um, I wanted to read this statement that Tony Martin, love it when a German guy is named Tony, uh, Tony Martin, actually, uh, that he wrote on Instagram, because I, I found this very funny. To all the people next to the road who think that the Tour de France is a circus, to people who risk everything for a selfie with a 50 kilometer per hour fast Peloton, to people who think it's nice to show their naked butt to drunken people who push us sideways on the climbs, to people who think that it is a good idea to hold a sign into the road while the peloton is passing. Stefan, I want to ask you this forcefully. 
please respect the writers and the Tour de France. Use your head or stay home. We don't want you here. You risk our life and our dreams for that we work so hard. So Tour de France is known for having idiot fans. Mm -hmm. It's like the running of the bulls, mm -hmm. except with bikes. And so part of me is like, well, people just don't know how to act because they've been inside too long in France or wherever else. And part of me is like, we're back to normal, baby. Totally. Let's go. I'm, Let's do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I am looking at a slideshow on ABC News' website from the 2015 Tour de France. And here are some of the images. There is a guy dressed up as a uh, devil. His, he goes by El Diablo. Oh, that's Apparently, a classic. He's a regular classic. Okay, then there's, uh, where are these dudes? They must be in, uh, oh, they're French. Dude playing a trumpet, guy playing a, an accordion. They've got a table set up. They're playing cards by the side of the road. Um, okay, there's uh, somebody dressed up as an angel. There's a woman on a horse, a bucking horse next to the road. And there's a guy holding a pig. A bucking horse, the he said. Goes by. Oh, so, these, pe these people are ironing as the peloton goes by. Yeah, instead of, I mean, maybe week of idiocy here, Joel could apply less to the fan and more to the organizers. Because one thing we've talked about this is a kind of recurring mini feature on this show is like, what are the things in sports and in life that the pandemic will have changed? Like a year from now, what are, you know, we're all, I think, going to be working from home more, et cetera, and so forth. But like, this would have been an opportunity to be like, uh, maybe we could do this a little bit differently. We didn't have fans at the start and the finish yeah. last year. But there is, I think, an appeal, an extremely understandable appeal to have absolutely everything go back to how it was before because we want our lives to be quote unquote normal. And there is this sort of majesty and history to, you know, in the, in the best moments, having the fans along these like, you know, foggy mountain climbs and running alongside the cyclists. And what would we be as the French people if we didn't have this? And so I, I think maybe that's the tension, Joel, is between like sensibility and, and normalcy. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's understandable. and normalcy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's understandable why people want to get back to the life we had before March 2020, right? That we want fans back in stands. We want them to be along the sides of the route, whether it's the marathon to the Tour de France or whatever, right? That we want to reclaim that life that we lost. People feel like people do feel a, an acute sense of loss from what's happened over the past year. And it's totally understandable that we would want to get back to that. But yeah, I mean, there, it, that surely there can be a smarter way of doing some of this stuff. I don't know how hard it is to get up to the top of a mountain and hold a sign and be alongside. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, we should I be assume, applauding. We should be applauding the effort it took yeah, to even get I'm, in the position to destroy yes, the race. It's amazing <laughs> you, if, when you see if, these images from the Tour de France and there's people at the tops of the mountains. Like, how yeah. the fuck did they get there? What are you right. doing I there? Mean, if you care enough about the Tour de France to get up there and do that, I feel like you should kind of get to be there, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's a but little bit hard to regulate, Josh. As like you know, as much as we would like to say, "Oh, the Tour de France should just say 
you know, everybody stays six feet back or set up jersey barriers alongside the route. This is hundreds and hundreds of miles. That's true. That's a I good mean, point. I mean, there's no way to control where fans go. I guess you could stop them from going up the road at all, stop them from leaving towns and only permit yeah, maybe fans I retract, inside maybe I retract the towns. My point, maybe I retract my point that it's a good point because, like, there are plenty of auto races and bike races that are on city streets where they just, like, block off the streets. <laughs> It doesn't seem literally impossible to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like a competitive disadvantage. Like, unless if everybody like a, falls down, too, by the way, I mean, we're all kind of in the same spot then. You know what I mean? I mean, unless they're so dedicated, it'd be like the Von Trapp family. You know, they're going to be, like, climbing over mountains to get to the next stage of the route. Joel, do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit more about the College World Series if we want to move on to domestic idiocy? Yeah, right. So um, after NC State's loss to Vanderbilt on Friday night, Wolfpack coach Elliot Avent made it clear in an especially prickly post-game presser that he wasn't going to discuss whether or not he encouraged his players to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And we've got a clip right here. Yeah, Elliot, you, you had said that you didn't want to indoctrinate your players into your philosophy. Did, did you uh, get vaccinated yourself? I'll tell you what, Eric, I'm not going to talk about that. You, If you want to talk baseball, we can talk baseball. If you want to talk um, politics or stuff like that, you uh, you can... Go talk to uh, my head of sports medicine, Rob Murphy. So, Stefan, can you believe that politics have invaded the politics-free zone of college baseball, even if all this time? Yeah, Elliot, uh, have you been vaccinated for polio? Encourage your kids to get that polio vaccine? I don't want to get into politics. I mean, Jesus Christ, you're fired, dude. Like, why do we employ people like this? You know, universities are mandating that students get vaccinated in order to go to school. Vanderbilt has mandated vaccinations. Uh, North Carolina State, apparently, obviously, has not mandated vaccinations as a requirement for, um, for matriculation and for studying at the university. So this is just so painfully dumb that, I mean, my head hurts listening to that clip. I mean, Jesus Christ, this isn't complicated, people. And congratulations, your kids didn't get vaccinated. You got kicked out of the NCAA baseball tournament. So the NC State coach, according to a report I read on D1Baseball.com, Elliot Avent, he did get vaccinated. He got vaccinated in March. And so it also seems like According again to report reporting on D one the D one baseball website that at least some of the players on NC State who tested positive had been vaccinated, and so the thing that is the idiocy here is not that nece- not necessarily that NC State had COVID issues at the College World Series. It's the way in which this individual handled it not only at the press conference, but just like you can tell based on that response that this is a guy who is not a leader of men and or not a leader of anyone. I don't want to make it, make it exclusive to men. And we've, again, talked about this a, a whole bunch of times about coaches and, and their attitudes about this stuff. And for all that Stefan Fatsis wants to convince us that you know, we're, we're, all, we're surprisingly progressive. I, I mean, I, I feel disappointed <laughs> regularly uh, by these people. And the thing that would make this much easier to wrap our heads around 
as if they were all vaccinated. And then maybe we could know, okay, maybe there were some breakthrough cases. And mm-hmm. like, let's think about what that means. Like, what does that mean for them? What does that mean? Joel, we were talking about this a little bit before we started taping. Like, what will it mean for sports when maybe there is a herd immunity, but guys still do get COVID? Like, are we going to hold them out of games? Or in that circumstance, if you're you know, vaccinated, should you be allowed to play? Like, those are interesting conversations. And they're ones that we're going to be having, I think, in 2022, 2023. But with idiots like this, who are saying it's political and are saying, if you want to have a politics conversation, talk to my director of sports medicine, like people who are. That's kind of incoherent, like, right? Too. I mean, like your politics, your director. Of sports I actually medicine. do want to talk about politics. Can we get the director of sports medicine? On Zoom? <laughs> I'd love to talk to him. So with, with that attitude, we can't be having the more actually complicated conversations. If we're dealing with this just elementary shit then we can't get to the stuff that we're going to need to be getting to that we should be on now and we'll need to be getting to in years to come. But I mean, that is true of everywhere in American society. I mean, like he is firmly within a sort of mainstream, right? Like our president was but arguing. The thing that's against- so frustrating is that he has been vaccinated. Right. And he's still doing this shit. Right. This is not complicated, right? Yeah. I mean, and this is very also NCAA, the sort of, compartmentalization of college sports. This is not hard. Like, why can't every university president basically tell their, you know, staffs that when we talk about this stuff publicly, we say it's imperative for the health of our students and for our community that we get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Um, because not everybody believes that. mandate vaccinations as a condition of playing sports. This is not super difficult. The NCAA, of, of course, has had no leadership on this. It has had a piecemeal um, rules-making and adjudication of cases. And it's nowhere to be seen. And once again, it looks stupid. That well, there's no, stuff there's no, there's no one is out there sort of making sure that the message that is conveyed to the public is consistent and it's smart. Right. But Stefan, this is a not an NCAA problem. This is a global problem. Like we're actually having to convince people from all walks of life in all institutions, you know, whether there's a significant minority or not or a plurality of people of the importance of getting vaccinated or of encouraging people to get vaccinated. Like this, like the reason things got as bad as they did in the past year is because of the, the very attitude that Elliot Avent has. I don't know if I want to take it or not, but if I do, I don't want to convince people, other people to do it because it's a personal choice, not realizing that it is actually a public health issue and your choice affects everybody else. But and so like, where that does that message come from, debate. though, Joel? It's got to come from the institution. He's employed well, by somebody. He's not just a ball coach. But you don't take for granted that the, in, the people within the institution actually believe that it is important to carry that message along. Again, like our federal government couldn't get it right. You know what I mean? Like state governments don't get it right. Like right now, I mean, I guarantee you, if you polled the people that run the Texas state government right now, like the Republicans that run it, like you probably wouldn't even get half of people that would believe that there is a public imperative to convince people to get vaccinations. So like he's firmly within a kind of mainstream and like we're seeing that stupidity spill over into every facet of life right now. All right. I'm going to maybe end it for us by saying that I have the solution. Brett Kavanaugh just needs to write a scorching opinion (laughs) that everybody can get behind, and then we'll be able to move past this.
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. And usually we, you know, we'll talk about some figure from history or some funny, um, you know, old-timey phrase. I don't need to explain the After Ball naming concept to you. Uh, you, the loyal listener. But today, we're just going to you know, do a little something different. We're going to honor someone who deserves to be honored. And that is Francis Tiafoe, the American star, my favorite tennis player, Oof. who has just pulled off an amazing first-round victory at Wimbledon. While we were recording, I was maybe a little bit distracted, especially on match point. First victory over a, a guy ranked as highly as his opponent ever in his career great moment for the young man from uh, Maryland, Stefan. It's just, it's just a great time to be an American. Oh, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to convey his anti-American sentiment to the rest <laughs> of the, uh, to the, to our listeners, I guess. I'm heartbroken. I have really nothing to say. Francis Tiafo over Stefanos Tsitsipas. Uh, a, <laughs> a milestone victory. Great job out there, uh, Francis. Joel, what is your Francis Tiafo? My Francis Tiafo. So, if you watched the U.S. track and field Olympic trials the past two weekends, you've probably seen a wave of stars old and new: Allison Felix, Sydney McLaughlin, Trayvon Bromell, Gabby Thomas, and even our old friend Gwen Berry, who finished third in the women's hammer throw and resumed her courageous medal stand protest, qualified for the Tokyo Games. So shout out Gwen Berry. But if you stayed up really late Sunday night, and I doubt many of you folks on the East Coast were able to do it, Stefan, Josh, I'm assuming you guys weren't up at one o'clock in the morning watching track, uh, and had your TV tuned to the NBC Sports Network, you probably caught a glimpse of the next big thing in U.S. men's track and field, Arian Knighton. Who is Arian Knighton? Well, he finished third in the men's 200-meter final behind presumptive Olympic favorite Noah Lyles and silver medalist Kenny Bitnarik. And often, you know, we don't talk about people that finish third or get bronze because, you know, if you don't finish first, you finish last. But it's a big deal. Um, And I'll just give you some context. Noah Lyles, a few weeks shy of turning 24 and became a professional when he was 19, right before he enrolled at the University of Florida. Kenny Bednarik is 22 and turned pro out of junior college two years ago. They're a little on the young side, but they're firmly within the expected age window for world-class sprinters. But Knighton, here's what the announcer said about him last night before his record-breaking run. Before these championships started, I thought he had an outside shot of finishing top three. After watching him break Usain Bolt's junior record running 1988, he is now the favorite He turned 17 in January. He'd be the youngest man to make the U.S. track and field team since Jim Ryan qualified in 1964, the first high schooler since 1972. First high schooler since 1972. That's almost 50 years ago. So uh, about a minute later, Knighton was in the race of his life. He got out to a slow start, and Lyles, the favorite, quickly made up the stagger on the inside lane. Coming out of the curve, Knighton was closer to the back of the pack than the front of it. 
But here's the final half of the race. Miracle will lead off of the turn. The high schooler has some work to do, but Noah Lyles is in a good position. Here comes Noah Lyles. Kenny Benaric. How about it, Ian Knighton? That looks like the three going to Tokyo. That is a huge win for Noah Lyles. Man. Knighton fought hard down the stretch and finished third in a time of 19.84 seconds, which is absurd for a 17-year-old and which broke Usain Bolt's under-18 world record. Yes, that Usain Bolt. He even looks a little like Usain. He's at six foot three, 170 pounds, with a similar sort of gliding running style that looks more efficient than powerful like many of the shorter sprinters, like Noah Lyles. But that six foot three and 170 pound frame typically would have taken him somewhere else, somewhere down another more familiar path, if his sprinting talent had been so hard to deny from the start. Knighton is from Tampa, Florida, which I can tell you personally is one of the most rabid and competitive youth football environments in this country. He started out high school at Hillsborough High School, the oldest high school in town, and the alma mater of great athletes like Dwight Gooden, Gary Sheffield, and Carl Everett. It's a very big baseball school, among many others. So Knighton, as one does in Tampa, started out in high school as a football player and hadn't even run track competitively until his coaches asked him to do it to improve his speed. His first major competition came in 2019. Now remember, that's only two years ago. His first major track competition happened in 2019 at the Florida State High School track meet where he finished fifth in the 200-meter dash. That speed made Knighton a four-star recruit, and the scholarship football offers started to roll in from Florida and Florida State and Alabama, among all of the others. Knighton played all over the field. He was a quarterback. He was a wide receiver. He was a running back. He was a safety. And you'd figure that Nick Saban would have been able to close the deal on any speedy six-foot-three high school football player in the Southeast. But nope, Knighton didn't give him or anyone else a chance. He decided to forego his final two years of high school and turn pro. He signed a sponsorship in January with Adidas at the age of 16, and he's not looked back. He broke the 10-second barrier in the 100 meters at a meet in Florida in May. That's just, you know, a little more than a month ago. Later that month, he set the world under 18 mark for the boys 200, finishing at 20.11 seconds. Last week, he ran a time of 20.04 seconds in the 200. Then he ran 19.88 in the semifinals, beating the under-20 record held by the legendary Usain Bolt. Then there was last night. So obviously, there's a lot more ahead of Arian Knighton, but at the very least, he was smart enough to run right past football and into Tokyo. That's great. And after hearing that, it seems guaranteed that some NFL team is going to draft him at some point <laughs> or will um, you know, sign him as a free agent. I bet you he plays football again i don't know when um, you think so but, really or somebody will try to convince him to play football um certainly for a male athlete to do this at 17 i mean we've seen women you know allison felix cindy mclaughlin they were prodigies as teenagers but to do this at, at 17 is just i mean there, there's a reason why it hasn't been done in, in 50 years just like what an accomplishment I mean, that kid hasn't even really had a chance to train like a professional yet. You know, like, I mean, just think of the things you were eating and how you worked out when you were 17 years old. Presumably a little different from Marion Knighton, but probably not that different from most 17-year-olds. So, Stefan, also, I know you'd want me to mention Javon Harrison, LSU athlete, 
won first place in the long jump and the high jump mm-hmm. first since Jim Thorpe in 1912. I thought you were going to save that for the bonus segment, but that would be a tease. Maybe we'll get into it more, but like that's pretty uh, that's pretty cool too. You know what else is pretty cool? I'm going to petition to rename the after ball because of what just happened <laughs> in Croatia, Spain in Euro 2020. One of the most incredible fuck-ups that you'll ever see on a soccer field. Spain passes the ball back from 40 yards, like nearly midfield, to the goalkeeper who lifts his head and the ball rolls rolls by him and into the net. Croatia won, Spain nothing. Unai Simone, goalkeeper. Thank you, Stefan. Petition denied. That is our (laughs) show for today. Our producer... This week was Margaret Kelly. This was Margaret's last week. Margaret. No! No! Yo, no. You guys didn't know? She, she didn't tell you? Yeah, it's Margaret's last week. We're so <laughs> grateful for everything you've done for the show and uh, wish you well in your travels. Uh, thank you, Margaret. Yeah, we've really enjoyed her, and I just don't want her to leave, but she's doing it over our wishes, so. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Thanks. Margaret. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, Go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.